Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you can help support this podcast and keep it coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. So in accordance with my Twitter followers' wishes, I'm going to pick up on a narrative that I left off some months ago about the political upheavals in England in the 17th century and how they laid the groundwork for what we now see as the modern democratic political system. And I left off there in uh, The Road to Civil War. I left off in 1650 when the Puritan party that controls the House of Commons has effectively seized power in the country and they have tried and executed the king, Charles I. So I'm going to talk about the roughly 10 years that royalists called the interregnum, or the time between kings, from basically 1650 to 1660, and then the restoration, which on the one hand means the time when the monarchy returned with Charles II, so it means that event, And also, it can more broadly mean the period of time of a sort of attempt to reestablish order and a new balance of power under Charles II in the 1660s and 70s. And I'll leave off with the death of Charles II. So, obviously, all of this tumult and uncertainty and back and forth all of these ultimately failed attempts to create a new system and a new order in England stem directly from the Civil War. But there's also a bigger sort of longer-term background that I want to point to that really shows what was significant and helps to make sense of these complicated events of the Interregnum and the Restoration. And that's the sort of slowly emerging alliance in English society between the crown on the one hand and the growing prosperous middle class of commoners, what you could call the bourgeoisie, that really began in the Tudor era, especially under Elizabeth, when you have commoners like Francis Walsingham coming into the inner circles of power and the Queen's Privy Council and embracing this kind of growing urban commercial class and economy in England, and which was also reflected in Elizabeth's increasing deference and respect towards the House of Commons, where this kind of literate, small property holding and professional class had a voice. And this trend continued under her successor, James I, and the beginning of the Stuart era, and you can see it embodied in people like Francis Bacon, who also for a time was almost like practically the prime minister of the country for a period in James's rule. But this alliance between the growing uh, commercial and professional middle class and the crown dramatically broke down 
as I described in a blow-by-blow way, under Charles I, and led eventually to civil war. So after the civil war is over, you could say there's a kind of continuing search for a new governance and for a way to somehow rebuild a working relationship between the central circles of power in Westminster and this middle class. And it ultimately failed, really. It was challenged by peasants, by people who had no vote and no franchise and were unhappy with the inequality and instability of life in England. It was challenged by religious radicals on many different sides and also by the old landed gentry and aristocracy who had some degree of support among the peasantry as well. So ultimately, it proved impossible to find a perfect balance. Uh, And this alliance between the crown and the more, the commoner elite, this sort of rising middle class elite, it only could really be rebuilt later, actually, in the 18th century. And this sort of middle class that I'm describing, which was very literate, largely commercial and urban and Puritan in their religious beliefs, they came to feel that they had unleashed kind of uncontrollable radical forces and had to somehow retrench and reestablish some kind of centralized order. But there was nonetheless great uncertainty and stability with various different parties forming and then breaking different alliances. And the if there was any time of stability that we can talk about in the mid-1600s, it was to some degree in the Restoration. But ultimately, as I'll explain, that didn't last either. So let's talk first about the Interregnum, basically the 1650s. The Interregnum overall was a period of great intellectual ferment and experimentation, but actual practical power over the implementation of laws, the control of tax money and land and arms, was more and more consolidated. And greater and greater social control was imposed by a mainly Puritan elite that was in control of parliament and tried to run not only the state but society through the authority of parliament. There was a great degree of Puritan suppression of behaviors and activities that they considered improper from 1646, the end of the Civil War, onwards. The sort of great festive cycle, the celebration of holidays, what has sometimes been called Merry England, was repressed under the parliamentary regime. There was a failed attempt in 1651 by royalists to restore the young 21-year-old Charles Prince Charles to the throne and continue the monarchy, but this was defeated at the Battle of Worcester in 1651. So after this battle, the Puritan-dominated parliament really has effective control on the ground of the country. They also continue to occupy both Scotland and Ireland, countries that had been under the control of the English crown, but were still technically separate kingdoms. Well, their governments also get taken over by English Puritan occupiers. 
And there is continuing rebellion and resistance sporadically in both Scotland and Ireland. And so this necessitates the maintenance of a large standing army. So this new model army that had been created under Parliament to win the Civil War was not simply disbanded, but there continued to be a huge military force and very high taxes to continue to support this army. So you can see an irony here that ironically, the Civil War had begun over the question of who had the power to collect taxes in order to fund wars. And by the mid-1650s, you really see Parliament has fully stepped in to this role that had been previously claimed by the king. And these rebellions, especially in Ireland, were very brutally suppressed, with many thousands killed or deported forcibly to the colonies. Although Parliament, at least nominally, was in control of the country, in fact, more and more actual decision-making was in the hands of the so-called grandees, people who currently were or previously had been major officers in the army, and of these grandees, particularly one Oliver Cromwell, who was the most important leader in winning the war. So this new regime under the grandees, and led particularly by Cromwell, sees a certain degree of liberalization, but nonetheless a continuing suppression of actual living experiments in reform. So you might remember I mentioned people like the levelers and especially the diggers, sort of the most radical levelers who tried to seize control of land and reverse the enclosures and evictions that had been happening for decades. These were more and more suppressed, and the Puritan government found that in order to exercise control of the country, they really needed the cooperation of the local elites and even the old nobility and aristocracy. So although they countenanced certain reforms and changes that I'll talk about in the system of government, they stopped short of abolishing the powers and privileges of nobles, of local town and parish councils, and landlords. So in a lot of ways, you could say the Puritan government actually was somewhat reactionary. And if we look, for example, at the St. George Hill digger colony that I talked about last time, the sort of largest, most influential model of local peasants and uh, dispossessed people seizing back control and creating a kind of revolutionary commune. Uh, The St. George Digger colony was uh, harassed by local landowners. Initially, the Puritan government in the 1640s sort of held back from breaking up this colony and left it to the local court system. But the lord of the manor named Drake nonetheless organized gangs to basically beat, kidnap, and harass the diggers and torch their buildings and their farms. And eventually they were taken to court. The diggers tried to defend themselves and their claims, but they were not allowed to speak or testify on their own behalf. And they were ultimately condemned by the court as ranters. So they were labeled as part of this radical, heterodox religious group, uh, whether rightly or wrongly. 
And in August 1649, they had to remove from St. George Hill and went to Little Heath in Cobham. And the local lords in that area also attacked and were able to drive them away. So in 1650, other communities nonetheless sprung up, sort of following their example, farther north in England, in Northamptonshire and Buckinghamshire. And these initially seemed promising, as if a sort of national movement of diggers was taking hold, but they also were suppressed. So by 1651, when this royalist rebellion is put down, at the same time, this digger movement is also effectively quashed. And meanwhile, within the country, the Puritan party in control of parliament goes through a sort of complicated back-and-forth effort to create some kind of new, stable, and durable Republican government. And we can call it Republican. It was sometimes referred to at that time also. But the general term people used at the time was a commonwealth, participatory state or government of some sort. And under the commonwealth, there was a succession of different parliaments elected by different people with different makeups. And they tended to be unstable and unworkable. They don't last. There's too much extreme division between different ideas of what the country should be. So there's continuing uncertainty in these years, in the early 1650s. And more or less, these elites of grandees who had won the Civil War seize control bit by bit and eliminate their opponents. So for a period of time, Cromwell, the sort of main, most prestigious, most respected grandee in Parliament, tries to work together with this limited group called the Rump Parliament, this sort of smaller House of Commons that had been left behind after defenders of the king had been dismissed and expelled from the House. And the House of Lords also had been abolished and shut down. So you have what's left this rump parliament that's overwhelmingly Puritan and that overwhelmingly had been loyal to the parliamentary side in the Civil War. And Cromwell tries to work with them, but even that level of cooperation breaks down. There's too much controversy over his policies, his leadership. And so in April 1653, Cromwell simply dismissed this rump parliament Reportedly, he walked in and shouted to the MPs, quote, Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go, and you are no parliament. And he called in a troop of soldiers. So ultimately, he has the loyalty and support of soldiers. And under the command of Major General Thomas Harrison, they clear the chamber And shortly thereafter, the rump parliament is replaced with an even smaller nominated or bare-bones parliament, a small group of only 140 MPs that were selected by Cromwell and his supporters. And they came from all countries, but overwhelmingly from England, with just a small handful also representing Scotland and Ireland. So in a way, this was a sort of symbolic attempt to create a single central authority to govern all of the British Isles in case of what had in, in place of what had been the crown government. And within that bare-bones parliament, Cromwell also selects out an even smaller council of state to handle executive functions, 
much like a privy council that would have previously existed for Elizabeth or James. But this entire group is quickly dismissed just a few months later, and the council simply declares Oliver Cromwell Lord Protector. So Cromwell more and more is becoming the sort of sole personal ruler of these domains. And he is not explicitly declared a king, but they use this kind of, you could say, thinly veiled euphemism of Lord Protector. And all of these new powers are then formally ratified under a new written constitution called the Instrument of Government. So once this is rubber stamped by this council, it becomes the first written constitution ever used in Britain, one of only two. And Cromwell effectively has almost all of the powers of a king, you know, control over the armed forces and veto power, and he's supported by the generals and grandees. So you have basically a dictatorship, what we would call a dictatorship, in all but name. So this period where Cromwell takes up the title of Lord Protector, it lasts from 1653 to 58, and it's sometimes called the Protectorate, so this middle period within the interregnum. And this Protectorate regime governs with the support of two Protectorate parliaments. And these Protectorate parliaments are actually more upper class in their composition than these previous parliaments like the Rump Parliament. And in a lot of ways, they represent more of the kind of landed and conservative interests of the country. And once Cromwell has these dictatorial powers with the support of these protectorate parliaments, he does bring in some liberalizing reforms in some ways. He does loosen some of those harsh restrictions on things like public dancing or drinking or celebration of holidays. He also abolishes censorship. So now the regime will simply allow anything to be circulated and printed. They're not going to bother monitoring and suppressing political or religious speech. They also disestablish the Church of England. So there had been this severe tug of war over how the church should be governed, how worship should be conducted, whether there should be a book of common prayer, and so on. And basically, Cromwell washes his hands of this issue by simply saying, we're no longer going to give any state support to any church. We're just going to allow a kind of free-for-all. And what was left of the church, without the state backing up the bishops, the the bishops or the episcopacy basically had no more control over what happened. And instead, the church reached a, a sort of Presbyterian settlement, meaning that affairs would mainly be run and managed and disputes would be settled by synods or councils of elders. But it was no longer an established state church. These local synods would have most of the control, and also many groups and congregations simply broke away and did their own thing, adopted whatever worship style or liturgy they wanted, whatever doctrines they wanted. And there was a proliferation of so-called independents, who now really stood completely outside the Church of England. And there was still continuing controversy and confusion then over whether there would be some kind of reestablishment 
whether eventually the protectorate regime would settle on some sort of new Presbyterian or congregational system of church governance and reimpose uh, state authority over this church, but it never happened during the protectorate. So under these conditions, without censorship and without uh, bishops monitoring and controlling religious speech and religious worship, there was a great proliferation of popular and underground and heterodox ideas among the populace and the formation of all kinds of new radical groups popping up now that they were able to come out into the open and preach and spread their messages. So as I mentioned before, there was a group that emerged called Ranters. Uh, That was not their name for themselves. That's what they were called. But they were basically radical antinomians, which was a phenomenon that was growing in many parts of Europe at this time. And antinomian means against the law. So these were people who believed that if you were saved by God's grace through Christ or through faith, then you were incapable of sin. Nothing that you did from that point onward could be sinful because you were saved and your will was simply acting out God's will. And so therefore you no longer should worry about whether you were adhering to or breaking rules. And some ranters made great displays of violating the Sabbath or violating sexual taboos, and they were kind of intentionally provocative and inflammatory. And their message did reach certain audiences, particularly among the commoners out in the country. There also was a faction of fifth monarchists or fifth monarchy men, and these were people who believed that the events of the day, like the overthrow and death of Charles I, signified a kind of approaching judgment day. They looked to the prophecies in the book of Daniel, which foretold that there would be a series of five human earthly empires that then eventually would fall away and be replaced by the direct rule of God, by God's representatives. And so, not surprisingly, some people at the time believed that the Civil War and the Interregnum were the sort of prelude to this coming rule by God, this final divine monarchy. And as part of that, they believed that they were no longer subject to any earthly or human authorities. So a lot like the antinomians and the ranters, they believed that they could openly break civil laws uh, without divine or spiritual consequence. Now, out of this welter of sort of radical Protestant underground groups, there also emerged an important and respected preacher named George Fox, who created the movement that we now call Quakerism, although at the time it was simply called a Society of Friends or Religious Society of Friends. And Fox preached absolute pacifism and nonviolence. He preached against any sort of religious coercion in uh, matters of faith or salvation. And like many other people at the time, he preached adult baptism. So in this sense, he was an Anabaptist. Uh, He did not believe that the baptism of an infant who had no idea what was going on had any validity, but rather people should be rebaptized as adults when they understand and embrace the faith. 
And this Quaker movement, in some ways, it was not the most radical, but it was a serious new presence on the scene, and it spread very quickly and became very strong, especially in the Midlands and the north of England, and had a very strong base in Yorkshire in the northeast. So all of these radical religious ideas were kind of bubbling up and in some cases frightening the elites, even the most ardent Puritans were often uh, disturbed by these ranters and diggers and Quakers, uh, but also among the literate middle and upper classes, people who had been part of the gentry or the nobility, there was also a great deal of prophecy and millennial excitement and new radical ideas. Uh, among natural philosophers, there was as I've said before, a circulation of hermetic and astrological and alchemical ideas. Uh, also, many of them looked back to the prophecies in the book of Daniel and the idea that the secrets of nature are being revealed. Uh, Robert Boyle was very important in this movement, and through his networks of underground correspondence, he organized what he called an invisible college which probably then laid the groundwork for scientific institutions, as we'd call them. And there were various radical political ideas, not just republicanism and belief in the protectorate, but there was a great deal of controversy and a sort of new divide over whether democratic and egalitarian political ideas that underpinned the commonwealth should also apply to questions of property and wealth and land. Should there be redistribution of wealth and property, particularly in this highly valuable form of land? And Gerard Winstanley, the sort of ringleader and spokesperson for the digger colony in St. George's Hill, he saw this digger movement kind of swept away from under his feet, but he continued to advocate for this idea of common ownership of land and the abolition of private property, and he published more radical tracts to that effect through the 1650s. However, probably the most impactful and attention-grabbing political tract of this time was written by a man named Harrington and published in 1656, and it was called The Commonwealth of Oceana. And you could see it as a kind of thinly veiled utopian revisioning of England as a kind of radical Republican society. And he drew a lot of his core ideas from Machiavelli and the Italian Renaissance humanist Republicans. And he also broached this question of material relations, and he argued that there could only be a strong, free society with liberty and stability if there was an even distribution of property, particularly in the form of land. And in a lot of ways, Harrington was a forerunner and laid the groundwork for Marx and Marx's idea that there, that society has an economic base, and then politics and culture and such are a superstructure, basically just built on top of and predicated upon the economic base. So Harrington really argued that to have the sort of society that these radical Puritans or Fifth Monarchists wanted, you had to attend to the distribution of land and wealth. 
So this was a very impactful and lasting argument, and and the Commonwealth of Oceania was really deeply influential in how English and British people thought about politics for centuries, although we hardly ever mention it today. So there was this great flowering and circulation and experimentation with new and often radical ideas, but the Puritan government centered around Cromwell tolerated a great deal of this sort of explosion of different ideas and of preaching and printing But eventually they did reach some limits. There were some things that these Puritan grandees couldn't accept. And there was eventually in the late 1650s a slow creeping back towards the old constraints on religious and political ideas. And a very important watershed in this process was also in 1656 when a Quaker preacher or public friend named James Naylor marched into Bristol in order to spread the Quaker message in this important western port town. And he rode in through the town gates on a donkey with his followers strewing garments in his path to sort of uh, cover the roadway as he entered into Bristol. And this was a clear imitation of Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, anticipating Passover. And so Puritans finally were too shocked by this. They considered it an open blasphemy and insult to the faith. And they became more alarmed about the spread of this Quaker movement. And so Naylor was arrested and pilloried, whipped, and branded. This incident helped to, again, push the way towards kind of, you could say, reactive reforms. One of the things that happened is when a new parliament was called, they added on an other house, in quotation marks, a sort of upper house, which would have a veto power over the acts of commons. And they didn't call it the House of Lords, but clearly that's what they had in mind. They were sort of taking these steps back towards the old elite restraints on popular politics. And the instrument of government was replaced with a new written constitution called the Humble Petition and Advice, which gave powers to this upper house, simply called the Other House. And this, in a way, was a slap in the face to many of the more radical Puritans, like levelers, who wanted an equal democratic society without lords. And it led to protests and marches and riots against this new constitution, and also royalists. Royalists saw weakness and division in this coalition that had created the Commonwealth in the first place, and they also try to strike against this regime from the other side. So more and more, the position of Cromwell and his selected parliament under the humble petition and advice is becoming untenable. So Cromwell dissolved the entire parliament again in February 1657, and now he simply openly rules as a dictator with sole governing legislative and executive powers, with not even a pretense towards consulting a parliament. So you can see a tremendous irony here in that 
precisely the form of government, sort of absolute rule by a monarch, that had provoked the civil war in the first place during the personal rule by Charles I, you can see it now coming back into place all over again 20 years later, but now with Cromwell at the head instead of the king. And more broadly, the whole interregnum, I think, illustrates a paradox that you could call the Puritan paradox, this sort of peculiar approach that the Commonwealth and Protectorate regime attempted to use to control the country, where they allowed a great degree of freedom on the intellectual and religious plane, but in exchange, they tried to exert more and more practical control and restriction over actual activities on the ground. So everyday activity, self-expression in the forms of, of celebration, dance, song, whatever, that is clamped down. And the practical exercise of power, control over arms, over the court system, over local governments and councils, control over land, more and more is consolidated in the hands of a single centralized regime. So there's this weird sort of trade-off, you might say a kind of partial or illusory freedom. And this same sort of Puritan paradox, I think you can also see exemplified earlier in Geneva, in Calvin's Geneva, where supposedly there is no censorship and all kinds of religious ideas are allowed. But in practice, there's this marriage between church and state, which imposes tight, tight constriction on people's lifestyles and activities. And this sort of Puritan regime, of course, would not last. But the Puritan paradox, I think you can say, comes back again in different ways, in different forms in later eras. So that's more or less what happens domestically from Cromwell's first emergence into power to his seizure of complete absolute power as a dictator in 1657. Now, at the same time that this is going on, there's a great expansion of this new English empire. And the parliament passes the first Navigation Act in 1651, which was aimed mainly at cutting out the Dutch out of their role in trade and navigation among the colonies and tries to rechannel trade into purely English hands and both to direct the profits and the wealth generated by the colonies back to the mother country, but also to try to strengthen imperial ties between England and the colonies and create more of a sort of tightly bound empire. Cromwell's government also schemed what they called the Western Design, a plan to launch a massive expedition to the Caribbean to seize important territories away from the Spanish, the great Catholic enemy. And this expedition intended, when it approached the Caribbean in 1655, to take Hispaniola, but Hispaniola was a very large and populated island and pretty well defended. There also was bad weather, hurricanes. So they, they demur and stay away from Hispaniola. But as a kind of consolation prize, instead they land in Jamaica, 
which is one of the greater Antilles, but it's smaller than Hispaniola, and it had a much smaller population and almost no garrison. So with the help of some allies on the ground on the island, they land and are able to seize control of the towns and occupy the island. And very, very quickly, with the capture of Jamaica, the government at home in England sends in massive supplies of ships and money and people to populate and colonize this island. And it presented a huge opportunity for them, particularly because by the 1650s, Barbados was a fairly large and thriving colony with plantations, especially sugar plantations, using forced labor, some European indentured servants and some slaves from Africa. And they're able to simply transplant this system, the the practices, the technology, the plants, the animals, and many of the human beings from Barbados into this much larger island of Jamaica. Also, as I said, a great deal of Irish prisoners of war from those failed rebellions in Ireland are deported to various Caribbean islands, at first Barbados and Antigua, and then also Jamaica. But even this wave of captive workers is not enough, and the English more and more engage in direct slave trading. And they become massively involved in this triangular slave trade to West Africa, and they make a kind of concerted effort with some state support to compete with and displace the Dutch and the Portuguese, who had really pioneered the slave trade to the Caribbean. And more and more, England rises to become the big slave trading power. So Jamaica, in all sorts of ways, was a huge boon for interregnum England. But there were also new issues and questions that arose uh, that they hadn't had to deal with before. One was the significant Jewish group in Jamaica. So Jamaica had only a few thousand European colonists before the English took it over. But of those, a significant number were of Jewish descent, particularly Portuguese Jews who had gone to the colony and who were more or less openly practicing Judaism. You know, it was almost legalized in all but name, but it was still technically illegal. And so the English are able to make certain partnerships and alliances with Jews on the island. And basically, if these Jews help and then accept English claims over the island, then Judaism, it's understood, will be openly and permanently tolerated. So this accommodation is made. And for the first time, you have an English government pretty much openly recognizing and accepting Judaism in their territory. So this then raises the question back in England as well. What about the significant number of Spanish and Portuguese conversos, or people who supposedly had previously been Jewish or came from Jewish ancestry but were converted to Christianity, What about them? What if they want to be openly recognized and accepted as Jews and allowed to live and practice their religion in England? And this became very important because as England went to war with this and that different nation, sometimes with the Netherlands, sometimes with Spain, what would happen to these people in England who came 
in many instances from Spain or Portugal or the Netherlands and were being allowed, were just allowed conditionally to live in England, especially in London. Some of them came forward in the 1650s and openly said that they wanted to be recognized not as Spaniards or Portuguese, but as Jews. And hence, they should not be treated as enemies. They should not be deported. They should not have their property seized because they were not Spanish. They were not Dutch or Portuguese. They were Jewish. So this really forced the question then for the English government, what do we do with these people who are now openly professing to be Jews? And Cromwell was an extreme Puritan. He had people of various different Protestant religious views around him in his government. And there were some who were favorable to the idea of allowing Jews to live in England. Some of them may have had the hope that they could eventually convert these Jews and that that would then lead to the final judgment day and the apocalypse, the conversion of the Jews. So there were religious reasons why people might be on both sides of this question. And Cromwell and his inner circle apparently actually pressured a fairly famous rabbi in the Netherlands named Manasseh ben Israel, who, like a lot of these Jews in England, was from a Portuguese Jewish background. They pressured him to come and speak to this issue and explain the theology at stake and take a side whether Jews should be allowed in England or not. And Manasseh ben Israel gives testimony to Parliament, and he also meets privately with Cromwell himself. And he argues for allowing Jews to settle anywhere in all corners of the world. And he also had his own religious motivations for favoring that position. Uh, he hoped that if Jews settled in all parts of the world, that could then help lead the way towards the Messiah. And he also gets some support from Roger Williams, this guy who is running a sort of uh, renegade colony in New England and who has fairly friendly relations with the Oliver Cromwell regime. And Roger Williams also writes letters and tracts back to England supporting the idea of tolerating Jews. So the result is that Cromwell is stuck in a hard position. He knows there are also opponents who want to persecute Jews and who would consider this a betrayal of Christianity. So he makes no formal public ruling on this question, but basically from 1656 onward, the Cromwell regime in practice allows Jews to settle and live in England and practice Judaism, and more even begin to migrate into the country. But still, there are, there are no openly established public synagogues because there's still too much popular hostility towards Judaism in the country. And it's something that has not been openly practiced and legal for almost 400 years. So it remains mainly in private homes, but Jews are able to practice, they're able to profess their identity as Jews, and they're able to bury their dead in Jewish cemeteries, which is important to them. So you could say this policy of allowing the settlement of Jews in England is another instance of this growing acceptance and tolerance of different views and religious commitments in interregnum England. 
But there's still this simmering discontent on many sides. Many of these radical groups don't accept the legitimacy of this government or of any government. There are still royalists who abhor the chaos and who abhor the repression of social practices like the abolition of holidays. And this whole time, the Stuarts and their supporters are still waiting in the wings. So Charles II, this or this prince, uh, the son of the last king, he is defeated at the Battle of Worcester, but he is able to escape the battlefield and go abroad and lives for years in France and has supporters and protectors there in France. And others like Queen Henrietta Maria, who had been the wife of Charles I and was now the mother of this prince who whom royalists recognize as the new king. She, Henrietta Maria, travels around gathering support, building alliances towards the possibility of a future restoration. So this other possibility is always there on the horizon. And this really comes to a head in 1658 when Cromwell dies. So he's not very old. And it's unclear what's going to happen to this regime that he's built around himself. So the close inner circle around Cromwell simply passes authority down to his son, Richard Cromwell, who takes over command. So increasingly, it's just looking like another monarchy, as if there's another royal dynasty in place now. So Cromwell takes over command, and he decides that he wants to try to mediate these different contending parties in the country and come to some new consensus. So he convenes a new parliament, which is bigger and broader, and includes many discontented Puritans and royalists of various stripes. And he tries to use his power to protect royalists in the country who are being harassed by radical Puritan army officers. So people are butting heads, there's harassment, just like there was against the diggers. And Richard Cromwell tries to tamp this down, but this only then inflames these army officers who feel that they're the ones who successfully won the war and are entitled to govern the country and don't accept Richard Cromwell as having any right to rule. So Cromwell steps down after only nine months in power. Royalists then take this as an opportunity to revolt. And a Puritan officer named John Lambert successfully puts down this revolt and creates a committee of public safety. The sort of thing we've seen so many times through history, right? It's this beautiful forerunner of the committee of public safety in the French Revolution, which also was created to try to head off and suppress royalist counter-revolutionary conspiracies. So he creates this committee of public safety, but many of the other Puritan officers don't accept this increasing centralization of power and really political crackdown by this small circle, now controlled by John Lambert instead of by Richard Cromwell. And so another important officer named Monk, who is heading the English forces occupying Scotland, and so has a lot of men and resources under his control, he marches south into England, marches on London, takes control, and urges the 
rump parliament, which has been reconvened and reconstituted, the same basic parliament that had been in place way back in 1650, he urges them to voluntarily dissolve themselves, and he calls a new convention parliament to sort of sort out the situation and create some kind of new government all over again. So he convenes this convention parliament in April 1660. And this convention parliament, under the control of Monk, makes a deal with Charles, this prince in exile. And they accept Charles's declaration, the so-called Declaration of Breda, where he claims that he is the true and rightful king of England, but promises that if he takes up power, he will pardon all of the rebels. And all of these acts of treason and regicide and civil war will all be forgiven and forgotten. So the new parliament accepts this arrangement with Charles, and the restoration begins. And as I said, the restoration can have more than one meaning. On the one hand, that phrase can mean this specific event, this shift in power in 1660, when Charles comes to the throne. And it can also refer to the whole period of Charles's rule. But if we talk first about the event of Charles's arrival and taking up of power, the convention parliament declares that Charles is king and he should be recognized as Charles II. It revives and replaces the House of Lords. So you again have a bicameral parliament with commons and lords. Charles is invited to come back into the country, and he formally disembarks and marches through London on May Day, May 1st, 1660. And this is very evocative and symbolic because there were many traditions in England revolving around the May King, the sort of young, virile man who represents life, the cycle of time, prosperity, strength. And many people at this procession on May Day wave branches and twigs of oak. And this was a reference to the story according to which Charles had managed to escape the parliamentarians and safely flee the country by hiding in an oak tree, which they called the Royal Oak, which then shielded him and protected him. So the royal oak becomes a symbol of Charles and of the monarchy and the restoration. And it can be seen to represent sort of age, time, constancy, like the huge old ancient oak tree. People celebrate with bonfires, and some people throw rump roasts into their bonfires. And this is a reference to the rump parliament, which they are celebrating, finally being rid of. And there's a return, a very active and enthusiastic return to the festive cycle and the holidays and so-called Merry England. The new parliament gives pardon to all of the Puritans who had taken part in the Civil War and the Commonwealth, except for the regicides the small sort of council group that had tried and executed the king. They are condemned as traitors and sought out as fugitives, but by and large, everyone else is pardoned. And very quickly, there's an effort in Parliament to realign politics and to try to balance the contending interests and preferences of the different parties in society, including the crown, the landed aristocracy, and the middle class. And Charles himself 
as he takes up the throne, he has very similar sensibilities and views to his father, Charles I. But you could say he's learned a lesson from the events of the Civil War and the Interregnum. He's much more diplomatic and cautious than his father was. He does want to make some significant reforms, but he is more respectful of the prerogatives of Parliament, especially the House of Commons, and he tries to kind of manage and balance these different interests. And overall, you can see in these early years of the Restoration, there's an effort to not completely abolish or reverse a lot of the changes that happened in the interregnum, but to kind of redirect them into manageable official channels. So some of the ways you can see this is in the acts passed in 1660, and those include the creation of the Royal Society, a natural philosophical society led largely by Robert Boyle, which you can see is kind of following up on Boyle's invisible college and all of that kind of radical new natural philosophy, but putting it under uh, monitored and respectable royal patronage. Also the creation of the Royal African Company, which will manage the new burgeoning slave trade as a royally dispensed monopoly rather than a kind of free-for-all. The Navigation Act of 1660, which follows up on the 1651 Act and seeks to protect English shipping and block out foreign trade and shipping from the empire. So the Charles Restoration Regime wants to grow this empire but keep it within more controlled channels. And one of the stipulations of the 1660 Act is that all ships sailing to colonial ports must have at least 75% English crews. So they don't want to allow voyages that fly an English flag but really are staffed entirely by Dutch and Portuguese, which is the sort of thing that had been happening before. They also pass a Tenures Act, which replaces and reforms the duties that the upper class owes to the crown. And basically, it abolishes the stipulation that the owners and holders of certain land titles owe military service to the crown. And increasingly, that's not what the monarchical government wanted anymore, this restoration government, which was in large part run by middle class professionals and functionaries, they don't really want knights on horseback anymore. They don't want cavaliers being the main force defending the government. Rather, they just want money. They want cash and cash that they can use to pay for ships and sailors and mercenaries. So these old duties of military service are abolished and replaced with sockage, which is this old medieval term for cash payments to the crown in place of military service. So there's more and more a shift towards a government that respects the prerogatives and traditions of the old landed upper class, but that is run as a kind of middle class bourgeois state with extensive legislative power in the hands of the House of Commons. A few years later, Charles also openly proclaims toleration of Jews. 
So this policy that was sort of tentatively, unofficially pioneered in the interregnum becomes more official. So in the early 1660s, there were some anti-Semites who agitated for the expulsion of Jews from the kingdom, not surprisingly. But Charles II had been helped by a number of Portuguese Jewish supporters, both in England and abroad. Many of them were connected to his wife, who was Catherine of Braganza, a Portuguese princess. And they included in his inner circle physicians who helped to treat him, who, uh, like many physicians at that time, were Portuguese Jewish conversos or openly Jewish. So in 1664, he openly proclaimed royal protection for the Jews in England. So it was not a law, but in keeping with tradition, it was a royal policy that these Jews were allowed to live in the kingdom under royal protection. He also supported a series of new laws and acts regulating the church, which collectively are called the Clarendon Code. And the Clarendon Code officially restored the powers of the Anglican Church. So it once again became a state-backed church governed by bishops. It enforces a certain degree of conformity in terms of worship and liturgy under royal authority. But the king himself, Charles II, did favor a wider degree of toleration for dissenters and nonconformists in the church, and also for Catholics, for those who remained in the Roman Catholic fold. So he tried to sort of allow these alternative religious groups to still operate under kind of unofficial toleration, but he wasn't able to officially enact it through Parliament. Parliament was still too firmly controlled by Protestants, both Puritans and High Church Anglicans, who want to see some kind of state church that doesn't allow this explosion of radical ideas anymore, like had happened in the interregnum. So there's some degree of clampdown. So to look more broadly at the period we call the Restoration, which runs at least up through the 1670s, a period of comparative prosperity and at least partial stability under Charles II, there was, as I said, this continuing effort to balance and accommodate the different classes, with the king presented as the ultimate arbiter, the sort of peacemaker among these different interests. And Charles gives special place at court to his sort of preferred court philosopher, Thomas Hobbes. And when people bring up radical alternative ideas or challenge the authority of the crown, he sort of sicks Thomas Hobbes on them. And Hobbes, you may know, had written The Leviathan, which was published in 1651 in the midst of that early interregnum Commonwealth upheaval. And it makes a social contract argument for why the state should have an absolute ruler with final authority over everything with practically no limits. And Hobbes was not as popular or influential at this time as Harrington was and the Commonwealth of Oceania. But Hobbes got this royal patronage and was worked into the teachings of the universities and the scholars under the new political situation of the Restoration. And so today, the Leviathan 
is much more remembered and is on practically all undergraduate reading lists, and Oceana is not. And a lot of the advantage of Leviathan is that it gives a rationale for centralized royal power without depending on a divine right argument. So these sort of sticky uh, theological questions that had inflamed the different parties under Charles I in the 1630s, Hobbes does an, uh, an end run around them and makes this much more an argument with much less theological baggage, you could say, for royal authority. The Restoration is also a period of re-beautification. This is the time when the crown jewels and other treasures of the monarchy that had been destroyed were recreated. And the crown jewels that you see today displayed in the Tower of London were made during the Restoration. Also, a lot of the great uh, textiles, the copes used by priests at Westminster Abbey and Canterbury Cathedral, the tapestries, a lot of that was created in the Restoration period to glorify the monarchy and the restored regime and to show off this return to beauty and extravagance that had been so repressed under the Puritan regime. It was a time of new building and new architecture. This is when the Baroque style, the sort of complex, multi-layered, uh, eclectic style of the late Renaissance was introduced into England. And it was a time of great opulence and even extravagance, not as extravagant as you might see in France or Spain and places like Versailles, but certainly great extravagant and opulent displays by the standards of England. Uh, at least it was, you could say, a time of, of opulence for the small circles of the upper class and the royal court. It also was a time of empire and continuing imperial expansion. Specifically, the colonies on the mainland of North America expanded in all directions. They expanded inland and southward. The colony of Carolina was created in 1670, and a lot like Jamaica, it was created largely from people and materials brought from Barbados. New Hampshire was colonized in the northern end of New England, north of what had been Massachusetts Bay. And the new colony of Pennsylvania is created in 1681 by a company of Quakers led by William Penn, a, a Quaker grandee who had a close, friendly relationship with King Charles. It was a time of reorientation also of foreign policy and military policy. There were continuing repeated wars against the Dutch, just as had happened in the Interregnum. But Charles goes further in cementing an alliance with France and Louis XIV, who had previously been you know, the Catholic menace and great uh, nemesis of England. And with this friendly alliance with France and the continuing wars with the Dutch, the English are able to capture new territories, including very significantly in 1664, they capture New Amsterdam and New Netherlands, this sort of small Dutch trading colony on the Hudson. And it is then handed over as a kind of English personal domain to the king's younger brother, James the Duke of York, who is very interested in the empire and who wants to create 
a sort of consolidated provincial empire on the model of France. So hence, New Amsterdam and New Netherlands become New York. There's also a massive remaking at home of London. So all through the interregnum and into the restoration, there was continuing population growth, there was continuing poverty and dispossession in the countryside, and hundreds of thousands of people continue to migrate and crowd into London. So it becomes a very dangerous disease environment. In 1665, a plague breaks out, which kills thousands of people, called the Great Visitation. And after the Great Visitation, large sections of London are now depopulated. You have all kinds of tenements and small apartment houses and workshops that had been crowded and now are practically empty and unmaintained. And this creates a fire hazard. So in 1666, the Great Fire breaks out, sweeps through London, destroys most of the center of the city, including some of the great uh, monuments and landmarks. And the Great Fire then creates a situation that people in the royal government and the royal society see as an opportunity. This is their chance to now rebuild London as a new great capital along planned lines. And serious proposals are drawn up by artists and engineers in the Royal Society to create a sort of street grid of grand avenues along Kabbalistic lines, following the sort of what were considered fortunate or healthful lines and arrangements according to the teachings of Kabbalah. But this proves to be impossible largely because of English common law, which gives great powers and prerogatives to owners of private property or allodial property. And much of London was owned by small landlords and shopkeepers and so on. And in the aftermath of the fire, these people move in and basically set up camp and start rebuilding on these plots of land that they still consider themselves to own. And it's just too difficult for the royal government to fight these small landholders. And so they aren't able to rebuild a new street grid and a new London. But things start to spring up again on the same sort of chaotic, curving medieval street grid that had always been known before. But what the royal government is able to do is seize on certain important large landmarks that they have the wealth and the wherewithal to rebuild. And they commission a sort of talented, ambitious, new young architect in the Royal Society named Christopher Wren to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral, the great Anglican cathedral in the city of London. And many people in the public simply expect that Wren is going to propose another Gothic cathedral. And he had designed many buildings in what's called the perpendicular Gothic style, a sort of slightly revised, simplified Gothic form, kind of building on the Tudor Gothic. But instead, he puts forward a totally radical new vision where he proposes a sort of simplified, what you could call English Baroque cathedral, built out of plain white marble with rounded, wide open neoclassical arches with a big stone dome like you might see on the Duomo in Florence, but even more simplified white stone 
neoclassical colonnades and with tremendous open windows that were not stained glass, but simple clear glass. So he was going for an effect of neoclassical dignity, openness, airiness, bright light, unlike the sort of atmospheric and colorful Gothic cathedrals that people had known. And initially, he even proposed that it would be a Greek cross, meaning it would have a, a central dome and equal length arms reaching out in four directions, like a plus sign. But that was a bridge too far. You know, the king and the public just thought that was too weird and impractical. And so he at least adjusted it to be a traditional Latin cross with a long nave leading up towards the altar and a short transept cutting across it. And that's the design we see today in London. So in a lot of ways, this was a symbol of, of the Restoration era, of this new uh, time of, of display, of grandiosity, but adjusted to English rather than continental tastes. The Restoration was also similarly a time of innovation and flowering in art and literature and theater with its own distinctive style, and particularly theater. Theater had naturally been banned during the Puritan regime. It was controversial even before then, but it was completely illegal under the Commonwealth and Protectorate. But in the Restoration, two theater companies were given royal licenses to mount public performances. And this was kind of a genius move to license two companies because it spurred competition and hence creativity, innovation, and it stimulated great interest and enthusiasm in the public in this growing city. And a new style arose, which is often called Restoration Comedy. And Restoration Comedy stemmed probably originally from court performances or masks put on privately at the royal court, but it then crossed over to the public stage. Restoration Comedies tend to involve many complex plots, mixing different styles and genres. And in a way, you can see these plays also as Baroque, intentionally complex to the point of being overwhelming, highly stimulating, and a play could have plot lines that really bend genres, some that are tragic, some that are comic, some that are bawdy and sexual, all woven together. And it's impossible to really uh, parse out, is this a comedy play with a tragic subplot or a tragedy play with a comic subplot? And they could present a kind of complete theatrical experience where all tastes, all interests, could all be catered to in one extravagant performance. And many playwrights reached new levels of fame and prestige, and among them was the first openly acknowledged professional female playwright, Afra Ben. So women were becoming openly involved in theater for the first time, and eventually it was allowed for women to perform and act on stage before a public audience, which had never been allowed before. Back in Shakespeare's time, all roles were played by men. Now in the Restoration, you could have women playing women, or sometimes women playing men, or women playing women dressed as men. And some of these women could also become famous and have their own fans and followings, just like the male performers. Within the royal court itself, and at some aristocratic courts, 
the Restoration also became known as a time of decadence, of indulgence, often extravagant indulgence in various pleasures, and the intentional flouting of the old rules and taboos that had been imposed on the country by the Puritans. And the king himself especially loved indulging in these sort of decadent pleasures, partly as a way of really sticking his thumb in the eye of the Puritans, or what was left of them. But you could say the real embodiment or personification of this mood and style of decadence and extravagance was John Wilmot, the Earl of Rochester, who was a courtier and sometimes soldier, and an extreme lewd and explicit satirical writer. And the Earl of Rochester, it seems, had sexual interests in people of both sexes. He had many affairs and mistresses. And it seems that he really embraced this mentality of hedonism. But the reason he became so famous was that he was also extremely witty and brilliant and ambitious. So when he was young, just coming of age, he wanted to marry, and he didn't have a lot of money, so he wanted to marry up to a wealthy person. And he courted Lady Elizabeth Mallet, but her family did not approve, so he kidnapped her and took her away and tried to marry her forcibly. And this was a great scandal that embarrassed the royal court. And as recompense, the king had him serve in the Navy. And it seems that he did serve for several years effectively and honorably. And then after finishing his time uh, at sea, he came back and served as a gentleman of the king's bedchamber, sleeping at the foot of the king's bed and helping him dress and all of these kinds of menial duties. And after doing that, he was then allowed into court where he could really display his talents and his outsized personality. He was able to marry Lady Elizabeth and hence gain access to a lot of money. And he was then appointed to a seat in the House of Lords. So he now has great prestige and even some political power. But he really, again, was known as a wit who was able to improvise brilliant comments and even epigrammatic verses. Uh, And he was given, because the king liked him and his style and his outrageousness, he was given a degree of license to mock the government and the king himself, a lot like a jester that you might have seen at a medieval court. And one of his favorite epigrams that he supposedly improvised and recited for the king was, quote, We have a pretty witty king whose word no man relies on. He never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one. And the king reportedly responded to this, it's true, Uh, what he says is true, because my words are my own, but my actions are those of my ministers. (laughs) So if I enact dumb policies, blame it on my ministers, a very convenient gesture for a king. And Rochester gathered around himself and led a group called the Merry Gang, who were drunken, lewd pranksters, constantly causing mischief at the royal court. He also became involved in theater. Like the king, he was a lover of theater, and he made friends with Elizabeth Barry, uh, had an affair with her, and then also trained her and encouraged her to become 
an actress on stage, and she became really the first famous kind of celebrity female actor in England. But along with his wit and his personality and his, and his accomplishments, he of course got involved in various unfortunate and embarrassing incidents. For one thing, he and his merry gang knocked over the king's sundial, which was extremely rare and valuable. He wrote longer and longer satirical poems touching on political subjects, and one of them called In the Isle of Britain satirized the king's constant sexual exploits, which was natural and common enough, but he went so far as to accuse the king of actually neglecting the kingdom. And this was seen to go too far and put him kind of on the political outs. And then finally, he got involved in a brawl or a fight in which a friend in his merry gang was killed, stabbed with a pike. And this just created too much negative uh, publicity and embarrassment to the court. And so finally, in the late 1670s, Rochester was exiled from court and went out and lived in London. And according to his friend and biographer, he supported himself by posing as a doctor and calling himself Dr. Bendo, which is a made-up name that probably was mimicking the Spanish and Portuguese names common among physicians in England. And he claimed to be able to treat infertility and other gynecological problems. And doing this, he sort of parlayed his way into doing medical exams of naked ladies. And reportedly, he had some degree of success in his treatment of infertility, probably because he was surreptitiously acting as a sperm donor and helping women to conceive who had not conceived with their husbands. So he continued to sort of use his wits and his chutzpah, you could say, to manage to support himself. But he did die in 1680, aged only 33, from kidney disease, which probably was aggravated by his drinking and by multiple venereal diseases. So Rochester was known at the time as, as a classic rake and a libertine the sort of most extreme example of this new style of courtier under Charles II. But today he's known for his poems. He was a brilliant writer, you know, and I personally am not a great fan of restoration literature. It's not exactly my style, but Rochester was a genius And a lot of his work was privately circulated around the court. It might occasionally leak out into the public. And then for many years, it was forgotten. In the 19th century, especially the Victorian age, his work was suppressed. It was just seen as worthless, lewd garbage. But it has enjoyed a revival since the 1920s and 30s, when people were trying to overthrow repressive Victorian social norms, and celebrate uh, aestheticism and opulence. So now his work is often anthologized. It's for adults. There's dirty material and dirty words. Uh, One of his great classics is The Imperfect Enjoyment, which is a vivid description of premature ejaculation. One of his short poems that I really love is called The Mock Song, and it's clearly satirizing the sort of 
treacly, even whiny pastoral poetry of the 17th century, which often involves sort of shepherd lads longing for their beautiful maidens and begging them to love them uh, in return. So Rochester parodies this kind of sentimental verse in the mock song, and the song uses the word swive, which means to have sex. And it it uses adult language. So I'll just recite uh, this mock song. I swive as well as others do. I'm young, not yet deformed. My tender heart, sincere and true, deserves not to be scorned. Why, Phyllis, then, why will you swive with forty lovers more? Can I, said she, with nature strive? Alas, I am, alas, I am a whore. Were all my body larded o'er with darts of love so thick that you might find in every pore a well-stuck standing prick, whilst yet my eyes alone were free, my heart would never doubt, in amorous rage and ecstasy, to wish those eyes, to wish those eyes fucked out. So you can imagine the sort of uh, scandal and, and even shock that a poem like this could produce coming just a matter of a few years after the end of the interregnum and the Puritan regime. Some of his longer poems are even more rich and interesting and involve really sophisticated conceits. And one of the famous ones is called The Disabled Debauchy. And I'll just read parts of of this longer poem, The Disabled Debauchy which is written in the voice of an aging rake. So a man like Rochester himself, who is getting older and is anticipating the time when he'll no longer be able to be so promiscuous. And he will look back and reminisce about his sexual career in the same manner as an old soldier recounting war stories. So that's the basic conceit of the disabled debauchee. And this poem also uses the term link boy. So in the last stanza that I'll read, it makes reference to a link boy, which was a term for a young man or a teenager who could escort people around the streets of the city at night with a candle or a lantern. And the streets of the city could be quite dangerous at night. So link boys, you could pay them a bit to sort of take you from your house to your tavern or whatever. And many would double as prostitutes. That was a you know, commonly known fact. So I'll read some parts from the beginning and middle of the disabled debauchee. As some brave admiral in former war, deprived of force but pressed with courage still, two rival fleets appearing from afar crawls to the top of an adjacent hill, from whence with thoughts full of concern he views the wise and daring conduct of the fight, whilst each bold action to his mind renews his present glory and his past delight. From his fierce eyes flashes of fire he throws, as from black clouds when lightning breaks away. Transported, thinks himself amidst the foes, and absent, yet enjoys the bloody day. 
So when my days of impotence approach, and I'm by pox and wine's unlucky chance forced from the pleasing billows of debauch on the dull shores of lazy temperance, my pains at least some respite shall afford while I behold the battles you maintain when fleets of glasses sail around the board from whose broadsides volleys of wit shall rain. Nor let the sight of honorable scars, which my too forward valor did procure, frighten new-listed soldiers from the wars. Past joys have more than paid what I endure. Or should some cold-complexioned sot forbid with his dull morals our bold night alarms, I'll fire his blood by telling what I did when I was strong and able to bear arms. I'll tell of whores attacked, their lords at home, bod's quarters beaten up and fortress won, windows demolished, watches overcome, and handsome ills by my contrivance done. Nor shall our love fights, Chloris, be forgot, when each the well-looked link-boy strove to enjoy, and the best kiss was the deciding lot, whether the boy fucked you or I the boy. So Rochester's life and career, again, can be seen as the most extreme personification, the kind of frontier of the restoration of this sort of no-holds-barred uh, attack on conventional morality and the celebration of pleasure, of power, of experimentation. And the Restoration period also had its own paradox. You know, like the Puritan paradox, you could say the Restoration was paradoxical. It was this great flowering of art and aesthetics and pleasure at the same time that it continued the growing pattern of poverty and dispossession, and reached new heights of suffering for much of the populace. The re-explosion of plague in London, the devastation of the Great Fire, and the continuing wars. And I think you can see in, in this poem, The Disabled Debauchee, the, the parallel right between war, which was more and more frequent, especially at sea, and the pleasures of sex and promiscuity and this clever metaphor that that Rochester uses of comparing the scars of warfare to the scars of venereal disease. So as I said, Rochester dies in 1680. And by that time, the sort of mood of excitement and libertinism that had flowered under Charles II was already being dampened by a new crisis and by the renewal of some of the old political and religious divisions that had faded temporarily into the background. So there was, in the 1670s, there was still an uneasy peace, you could say, between former Puritans and former Royalists, people who had been on opposite sides of the Civil War and their heirs and their friends who still had a certain degree of suspicion towards one another. And these different parties were kept together by a shared understanding of a commitment to Protestantism. So Puritans on the one hand, High Church Anglicans on the other, they still believed that England had to be secured as a Protestant country with a Protestant church. 
And this was then upset, this sort of uneasy cooperative alliance is upset by the question of the succession to the throne and where that would lead England's religious policy. So King Charles II was very promiscuous, openly so, and he fathered many children, but all of them were with his mistresses, who included some prominent women like the great actress Nell Gwynne. But none of them were fathered with his wife, Catherine of Braganza. For whatever reason, they did not conceive. So there was no direct heir to take up the throne from Charles. And that meant that the heir apparent was his younger brother, James, the Duke of York, who I mentioned before, who was very interested in the empire and who uh, sort of took over indirect governance of New York. Now, Charles had lived much of his life in France, right, in exile abroad during and after the Civil War. And his younger brother, James, had actually lived almost his whole upbringing in France. And in a lot of ways, he was really more French in his values and tastes and habits than English. And in 1669, right in the middle of the Restoration period, James openly converted to Catholicism. So he is now openly Roman Catholic, and this naturally leads to a certain degree of fear. Does this mean that if Charles does not pass the throne down to some successor from his own issue, that it will then pass to this Catholic brother? And what does that mean if there is a Catholic ruler again for the first time in 150 years? Will the country be returned to Catholicism? Will Catholicism be reimposed? As happened last time, there was a Catholic ruler, which was Mary Tudor back in the 1550s. Will it even mean a reimposition of the Inquisition? So all of these questions are hanging in the air through the 1670s. And regardless of what you think James would do, whether or not you expect that he would try to reimpose Catholicism like Mary Tudor did, it creates a set of perverse incentives. So there was still a Catholic population in Britain. There was a certain Catholic wing, especially in northwestern Britain. It was very strong in Lancashire, a lot of Catholic gentry. Also in Scotland, especially in the Highlands, there are still Catholics, and Ireland is still majority Catholic. There's a English-descended elite there, which is more Protestant, and there are Ulster Scots in Ulster, but most of the population is still Catholic. So there are people under the rule of King Charles who are still Catholic, who have many reasons to desire a Catholic monarch, who will at the very least tolerate Catholicism and extend them equal rights, or who might even want to see the country re-Catholicized. And that means that then they have incentives to want Charles to die before he produces a legitimate heir, so that then, hopefully, the throne will pass to his Catholic brother. And, of course, there are forces abroad, especially in France, who are very friendly to James and like the idea of James taking up the throne. So there could be an international Catholic conspiracy, much as the Elizabeth government feared with regard to Mary, Queen of Scots, her 
successor, her potential successor, who was a Catholic. So things have been thrown back into a very tense situation, a lot like the 1500s all over again. And this problem is sort of festering in the background through the 1670s. And then these fears are dramatically ignited in September 1678, when an Anglican priest named Titus Oates approached the royal government with what he claimed was knowledge of a conspiracy. And Titus Oates was an Anglican, and he had faked conversion to Catholicism and gone abroad and enrolled in Catholic seminaries, from both of which he was expelled, before he then returned to England and told royal ministers that he had knowledge of a conspiracy by Jesuits to try to kill King Charles and ensure the succession would pass to James. So he took this information to the Privy Council, and he was even able to get an audience with the king. The king questioned him and was not persuaded that he was telling the truth or had any real evidence. So undaunted, Titus Oates went to a justice of the peace in Westminster, and in September 1678, he gave sworn testimony claiming that this conspiracy was afoot to kill and overthrow Charles. And this justice of the peace was then shortly after murdered. We don't know why or how. But when this information got out to the public, that evidence had been given to this justice of the peace, who then afterwards was murdered, it sparked great fear and paranoia. And of course, this falls into a long tradition of false conspiracy theories and forged documents purporting to reveal conspiracies against the state by the Catholic Church. And you can see incidents like this over and over again in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, even in, in the United States, things like the phony Knights of Columbus Oath. So it falls into this long pattern, right? Popular hysteria broke out. There was a flurry of tracts and pamphlets decrying the so-called Popish plot. And information of this scandal spread, and James, the Duke of York himself, personally called for an investigation into this matter in the hopes of clearing his name and dispelling what he considered false rumors. But with this investigation, uh, suspicion only further exploded. This seemed to be now an official imprimatur approving the idea that there was a popish plot. And all kinds of people quickly were accused of taking part in or covering up this conspiracy. And again, you can see the same sort of patterns. This is, this is not long before the Salem witch trials in, in 1692 in Massachusetts. It's the same sort of idea that uh, if anyone is accused, they're automatically guilty, and then they're pressured to accuse others. And so the hysteria spreads. And between 1678 and 81, a total of 35 people were executed for conspiracy or treason, including five Catholic lords and nine Jesuit priests. But by 1681, the increasing doubts around Oates and his allegations were solidifying. More and more people were seeing the holes and inconsistencies. He seemed more and more discredited. More people were seeing executions of people that they had previously trusted or respected. And 
eventually the trials were stopped. And in the following years, a, a shift in views took place where more people accepted that the Popish plot had been a huge mistake. But meanwhile, all through these years, from 1678 onward into the 1680s, there was a boiling controversy in Parliament. And right away in 1678, as the scandal broke, a party, a faction, organized in Parliament, largely of former Puritan roundheads, right, people who had been on the parliamentarian side of the Civil War, and their children and successors. And this group wanted to eliminate, understandably, wanted to eliminate the perverse incentives that had given rise to the Popish plot in the first place. So they proposed to exclude James from the line of succession. And some even drafted bills that aimed to exclude all Catholics. If anyone was Roman Catholic, they were out of the royal line of succession. And hence, they believed only Protestants would ever come to the throne. So meanwhile, there were others in Parliament who may have sympathized to some degree with this aim, but they were alarmed by the implications of this proposal, specifically by the notion that Parliament had the power to change the royal line of succession and determine who could or could not become king. And they understood that this would effectively make Parliament supreme over the crown, such that if any king came to the throne, he would owe his position to Parliament. And in, in effect, Parliament would have the real authority and could even control the, the royal crown as just a, a kind of puppet instrument. And they feared that if this happened, then that would lay, lead to the same instability and factional feuding that had plagued the interregnum. Right? They believed that there had to be an independent and powerful monarch to manage affairs and suppress social strife and division. So in effect, Parliament split into two parties who were for and against the exclusion proposal. And supporters of the exclusion bill, who wanted to cut James and other Catholics out of the line of succession, they turned to their opponents, who tended to be high church Anglican and gentry and royalist, and they called them Tories. So they used this word Tory, which was an old Gaelic word for an outlaw or bandit. And that was a kind of, you know, underhanded slander, right? Calling them criminals and also using this Gaelic word, possibly because many of them were Scottish or Irish or had sympathies with Scotland or Ireland. So they called their opponents Tories. And these so-called Tories then pointed to the pro-exclusion party and they called them Whigamores, or for short, Whigs which is an old Scottish word for cattle driver. So this was sort of uh, slandering the other side, the other party, as low status, right? People to be looked down upon. So these two factions, Whigs and Tories, they form around this exclusion crisis and the Popish plot, and both of their names originally are, are slanders, right? Are... are insult words used by the other side. 
This is actually where the two-party system originates. This basic divide of these two parties is what has persisted. The Tory party still exists and has power (laughs) in Great Britain today. And a similar sort of pattern then has formed in other English-speaking countries like the United States. So this two-party system really has its roots in fighting and feuding over hysterical conspiracy theory. So the Whigs were able, on some occasions, to muster majorities in support of the exclusion bill. And so, firstly, in 1678, Charles simply dissolved the parliament, and he hoped that he could simply shelve this issue until the furor over the popish plot died down, at which point people could sort of return to their senses. But this didn't happen, and for several years thereafter, the feuding and gridlock only intensified between Whigs and Tories. Another exclusion bill was passed through the House of Commons in 1680, but it was struck down by the House of Lords, which naturally is more Tory-leaning. Another bill was passed again in 1681, and so the king dissolved Parliament completely and tried to govern after that point without Parliament. So once again, this issue of a single dictatorial monarch governing without the consent of Parliament, which was the inflammatory situation in the 1630s, happened again in the 1650s with Cromwell, now it happens again in the 1680s with Charles II trying to tamp down and stop this exclusion bill. So with Parliament dissolved, the feud, this partisan feud, really goes out of doors and is fought in the public realm, in the press, in the pulpits, in the playhouses throughout England. And through the early 1680s, there is some degree of clampdown where political expression is dampened. One action was that the two theater companies were merged together into one and so that they could be more tightly controlled and monitored for what they were feeding to these public audiences. And this leads, for one thing, to less competition and hence less creativity, as there had been earlier with the two competing companies. And the theater also becomes more politicized. Many playwrights tended to be Whigs, uh, but two of the great leading lights of playwriting, John Dryden and Afra Ben, were Tories and mounted plays advancing the Tory point of view. So there was increasing and pervasive political tension and partisanship. And in 1683, another plot, a real plot, was discovered, although it was probably really half-baked and had little chance of success, the so-called Rye House plot, which aimed to assassinate both Charles and James at once as they went to the dog races. This was foiled, and it again, further inflamed tensions and distrust between the royal court and these increasingly radicalized Whig opponents. So this is the basic situation when Charles II finally died in February 1685. And the king had also kidney disease, like Rochester had had, again, probably fed by alcohol and venereal disease. 
One morning in February, he was shaving himself and he had a seizure and fell to the floor. His doctors rushed in and for days they repeatedly bleeded him and applied blisters to try to draw out the supposed poison in his body. They force-fed him all kinds of concoctions with wine and opium and various purgatives and peony essence and lavender and sugar and crushed pearls and the gallstone of an East Indian goat. They were really throwing everything they could at the wall, thinking some, something would heal him. But none of it helped, probably it hurt. And finally, one morning, he is extremely weak, and he asks to see his children and his various mistresses who come to say goodbye to him. On his deathbed, he converts and is received into the Roman Catholic Church, and then he passes. So naturally, the question now is, who will succeed? Will James take up the throne? Will he be accepted or opposed as king? And what will be the ramifications? So this is the real end of what we could call the Restoration Era. And a lot of the political developments and precedents and laws and constitutional arrangements that we know now stem out of the ramifying crises that follow after the death of Charles II. So thank you so much for listening. Again, if you can support, help keep this podcast coming, and if you want to hear all of my patron-only materials, including the next Myth of the Month, please go to my Patreon page and become a supporter at any level, even if it's just a dollar. Thank you. Thank you.